The word but in the English language, which is used as a conjunction to draw a contrast, can have both a negative and positive effect on the hearer. When a parent, for example, comes home and asks their kids, did you do your chores today? And their teens respond, well, I was going to, but at that point, the word but makes you angry because you can anticipate the plethora of excuses that are coming your way. Or maybe you're trying out a new recipe and you give your husband a taste and you wait for his response to the flavor profile. And he says, I'm not a fan, but you tried your best. Legend says that was an unwise husband. But consider this. You're sitting in a hospital room, waiting for the doctor to come in and give you your results. Every second feels like hours. Every footstep by your door makes your heart drop. You're in agony. What will the doctor say? Is it bad news? Is it good news? Am I dying? Is there hope? All the thoughts begin to fill your head. And at that point, you feel like you're on the verge of a panic attack. As you hear the doorknob twist, anxiety shoots through your body. The doctor walks in. He sits down and says, I'm sorry to inform you, but you have cancer. Time begins to stop. The blood leaves your face. Impending doom fills your heart. And then the doctor says, but, but there is treatment that proves successful in this stage. Your shoulders drop as you finally exhale and you begin to breathe again. Although bad news, the contrast of but gave you hope. The word but changed everything. And our text today contains one of the greatest uses of the word but in the entire Bible. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10. And our verses today stand out in striking relevance with the backdrop of our current world in our minds. What we see Paul doing here in our verses today is plumbing the depths of man's pessimism and then rising in glory to the highest highs of the optimism about God. And and what this does is paints for us a very healthy picture of how we should view ourselves. Paul is painting a picture that contrasts man by his nature in, in, in what he can become by the grace of God. And this is a reminder for us as Christians to never lose sight of these truths. The pendulum can swing to two extremes. You can forget the grace of God by becoming so focused on depravity, the depravity of the human soul, and that you will fall into despair and begin to live defeated lives. But the other extreme that is becoming very popular within the church is becoming hyper-focused on the grace of God, forgetting the depravity of humanity and where you came from. And what this will do will produce in you a naive pride spirit full of assumption. So church, buckle up because this is an exciting roller coaster ride. We must begin with the dreadful condition that we were all in when Christ found us. And maybe some of you here today are still in if you are outside of Christ. 
And as we go to our text, I see three acts, if you would, or three parts of our verses. And verse 1 to 3 starts part 1, which is our spiritual diagnosis. Let's examine verses 1 to 3 together, starting with verse 1, which says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 1 is a shocking verse. What makes this verse so shocking is remembering that in the Garden of Eden, God made humanity and said it was very good. God made mankind in his image and calls it very good. And then we read in Ephesians, Paul saying that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's shocking. It's offensive. And I want you to focus on two words with me for a moment. The first word I want you to focus on is you. Verse 1 says, you were dead in your trespasses. Not your neighbor, not the local criminal, not your siblings, or the other Christians who don't believe exactly the same way you do. The Bible says, you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is offensive to us. Picture Paul as the doctor giving you your prognosis. I'm sorry to tell you, but you're dead. We fall into the age-old trap of comparing ourselves and feeding ourselves lies that other people are bad, but I am good. I just make the odd mistake, but my life is on track. The bad person is always someone out there wanting to hurt us. That's why we put locks on our doors. That's why we invest in security systems and all these measures to ensure that we are protected from the bad people. Now, I'm using extremes uh, examples on purpose, but let me narrow it in for a moment and look at our marriages and our relationships for a moment. When something goes sour in a marriage, we tend to point at the other person and say, it's all their fault. If they would just stop doing X, Y, Z, then I wouldn't have to respond the way I have been. Don't you see, pastor, that it's her problem, that it's his fault? At what point do you say, hey, brother so-and-so, you've been married about eight times. I think you might be the problem. But it's not just marriages. When you look back at the broken friendships and relationships in the past, what do you always tend to do? You always tend to see yourself as the victim, as the innocent one. It's your parents' fault, for example. They were the messed up ones. It's your boss's fault. He was the jerk. It was your roommate's fault. They were being unreasonable. And we could go on and on. It's everywhere. For example, I often find myself at, behind somebody at a traffic light who just doesn't move quick enough when the light goes green. And I noticed to my anger that they are distracted. And I say, how dare you get distracted while driving? I, I never get distracted when I drive. And my wife is here as the human lie detector to determine that was a lie. But we, or another example, we often hear our kids yelling at each other in, in the house and we run to them yelling, hey, we don't speak to each other like that in this house. And then we sit up at night wondering where they learn to yell from. <laughs> It must be from their dad. He's always yelling. Because we always point fingers. We don't want to accept that we are the problem. It's easier to focus on everyone else. But all the problems, all the dysfunction is not out there somewhere, but it's right there staring back at you in the mirror. 
and it has a title over it which says, You are dead. Which is the second word I want you to focus on with me for a moment, which is the word dead. The word dead here in verse 1 refutes a common belief within the world and church that sin is primarily something you do and not something you are. We tend to look at sin as a list of things we do, right? For example, adultery, lying, stealing, watching the flames play hockey, right? Things like that. But the word dead dispels that. It shows us that sin is not an action. It's a condition of the heart. We are not bad because we do bad things. We do bad things because we are bad. Or to use the word sin, we are not sinners because we sin. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. We see this in our kids all the time, right? We go, we go from bringing them home from the hospital, staring at this little potato, wondering how we've been so blessed to get an angel from heaven, to pulling our hair out when they're two, wondering where this demon came from. Right? For the most part, we didn't teach our kids how to steal, how to take stuff without asking, but they do. We didn't teach our kids to be rude to others, but somehow that came naturally. I'm amazed at how many times I have to tell my three-year-old no, because he didn't listen the first time. We are born sinners. It's our fallen human condition. Everyone is subject to this. Only one person in history was perfect, and that was our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's like this. We all know what it's like to find a Tupperware container at the back of the fridge. No one knows how long it's been sitting there. You open it up. You smell the most ungodly smell that has ever graced your nose. It's an old piece of steak that has been decaying there for months. And it's found, to your surprise, in the container. Nobody in their right mind goes, you know what the problem is? I think I just need to add a little bit more spice or ketchup and that, you know what, that will help the smell and taste. No, the problem is not the smell. It's not the taste. It's the fact that it's dead and it's rotten. Since the day that cow, di that cow died, that meat was destined to rot. And it's the same for us. We are dead in our nature and we are rotting. We may smell okay for a while. We may learn how to mask the areas of stench in our lives through religion, manners, or culture. But the truth remains the same. We are dead. Verse 2 shows us what this spiritual deadness looks like. It says in, in Ephesians 2, 2-3, it says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what we see in these two verses is three phrases that are saying primarily the same thing. The first one is, in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. This is past tense, and lots of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is past tense, and we're going to get to why in a moment. But for now, I just want you to focus on that, that last part that says, following the course of this world. 
You may be wondering, what is the course of this world? And we could point to many things that that relate to the course of this world, but I love how St. Augustine describes the course of this world over 1,500 years ago, and it still rings true today. He says that the world, and the world is just like Bible talk or Christian talk for talking about the people of the world. The, the people of the world march to the drumbeat of three different things. The first thing is money. The world is obsessed with money and getting more of it. It's a tireless hamster wheel. The second thing is sex. We obey the desires of our bodies even when it's contrary to God's parameters or design. And lastly and thirdly, power. We seek to do things in order to exhort more power, be it more education, better looks, a larger circle of friends and influence, etc., etc., etc. Augustine says that the world worships these three things, that they are governed by these three things, and they give devotion to these three things that is rightly due to God. The second phrase that we see in these two verses is following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is an interesting phrase. And when I mention someone who follows Satan, you probably get a very specific picture in your head. That of a Satanist who is, you know, performing all types of seances and sacrifices somewhere out there in the woods. But what this verse shows us, keeping in line with Paul's thought and Augustine's thought, is that Satan is the one behind the money, sex, and power and is making it attractive. So what this means is that the one who follows after Satan is not the weirdo who's out in the woods committing seances and whatnot it's the very ones who are following the course of this world it could very well be you who are sitting in these chairs it could be very well your neighbor who cuts your grass for you every once in a while those who follow after the course of this world the bible says are those who are marching to the drumbeat of satan they are They are following the prince and the power of the air. We all were like this before Christ. Which brings us to our third phrase, which is among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, what this verse is telling us is that we are governed by the desires of our flesh. That means we are being mastered by the ways of this world. They have control over us. And what this essentially boils down to is we don't want anyone to tell us how to live our lives. We don't want anyone to make rules over us to control us. We as humans want to be in control. We don't want God to be in control. That's what the Bible says outside of Christ, before Christ, we are enemies of Christ. If it doesn't benefit me, if it doesn't make me happy, if it doesn't make me feel secure, then I don't want any part of it. Sin is not just that we are selfish or that we steal things or that we do things to hurt others, but it's also that we have failed to love God supremely in our hearts and to love others as we love ourselves. Paul then ends verse 3 saying that we are by nature children, children of wrath like the rest of humankind. That's a hard saying. This is saying that in our pre-Christian state that we were objects of God's wrath. And what this is also saying is that if you are here listening to my voice, that you and and you are outside of Christ, this is saying that you are still objects of God's wrath and that God's wrath is close to you and that you are under it. 
and that you're in danger of being crushed by it. The wrath of God is not just an impersonal consequence, nor is it a vindictive rage, but rather God, it's God's consistently pure anger towards evil, which means he will fairly punish sin, including yours. Because all sin is cosmic treason against a holy God. Remember, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Our lives are in protest against a thrice holy God. And in every possible way, we minimize him and we glorify ourselves. We serve ourselves and not him. We exploit creation for our purposes and not his. We made our desires the Lord of our lives and not his will. And this is seen in all we do. All sin is cosmic treason before a holy and righteous God who sees all and knows all. And all we do is committed in his presence. And I know what you're thinking. Like, shouldn't God just get over it already? Like, why doesn't he just forgive me and move on? But the problem with that logic is we want God to be mad at everyone else. We want him to punish everyone else for their wickedness. But where do you draw the line? What wickedness is deserving judgment and what wickedness is worthy to be tolerated? What these first three verses do for us is peel back all of our hypocrisy, zeroes in on our sin and shows us who we truly are. That we can no longer have an inflated ego. That we can no longer pass the buck and blame to someone else, including Satan. Because Satan just puts the bait on the hook and we choose to bite down on it. Satan can only tempt you with something that you already have a desire for. We all deserve wrath, church. Every single one of us here today, we all in and of ourselves stand condemned before a holy God. And this is a tough pill to swallow. And we don't like to talk about this. And you're probably thinking like, come on, man. Like, what an encouraging and lovely church in the park sermon. Like, couldn't you have picked something a little bit more friendly to talk about? But we need to hear this. We need to embrace this. We need to know this because we can never truly be set free without understanding our spiritual diagnosis. Think of it like this. Imagine three patients with heart disease being asked into a doctor's office after their scans and x-rays. Well, the doctor said, I do have some good news for you, but you won't realize the good news unless I first tell you the bad news. All of you have a serious heart disease because you've been chain smoking for over 30 years. And unless each of you has a major surgery, you will be dead within the year. Outrageous, shrieked the first patient. How could you criticize me like this? I came in here for some reassuring encouragement and you made me feel terrible. It's a disgrace. And he stormed out of the clinic. The second patient responded with a menacing fury. How dare you? Who do you think you are telling me my heart needs surgery? I'll find many other doctors to tell me that I'm fine. Oh, and by the way, I'm a lot healthier than a lot of the other smokers I know, and I feel fine. You're the most arrogant and outrageous doctor I've ever met. And he too stomped out of the clinic. And then the third patient, who we should all try to emulate his response, he sat there quietly for a moment. Doctor, he said, it's a terrible shock to hear that I need surgery. But thank you for telling me the truth. 
I am so relieved that there is good news of an operation to save me. Please tell me about it. And it's like that here. Paul has wonderful news to share about God's grace in the, in the following verses. But we will never truly rejoice in it until we recognize how appalling our natural condition really is without Christ. And this brings us to the largest conjunction in the universe in verse 4, which says, But God. Let that feeling just sit on you for a moment. Let that feeling of hope fill your soul. You are dead, but you're not hopeless. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This starts part two of our, 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 our act two of our verses, which is, but God. And why we have spent most of the sermon diagnosing our spiritual condition is because some of us here need to know that being outside of Christ means that we are inside of his wrath. And those of us who are inside of Christ need to remember just how great a mercy we have received. And that our salvation, according to verse 4, is bathed in the love of God. We tend to, as Christians, become desensitized to the word saved. And we start to look at our salvation as a rite of passage, that we are owed it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. We struggle to stand in awe of God and worship Him because we've forgotten how merciful our God has been to us. The reason some of you don't worship with passion is that you have no concept of the depth of depravity from which God has saved you or the glorious love He has used to do it. You live in this thing that I call the squishy, boring middle. But we're not called to live in the middle. Look at what verse 5 says. It says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So see, you're not meant to live in the middle. You're, you're, you're not meant to live lukewarm. You're meant to live alive in Christ. And notice verse 5, it's in past tense. Paul said Jesus made us alive, not will make us alive, but made us alive. This is the gospel on display for us in verse 5. It's a reference to the work of Jesus that he came so that and lived so that uh, we could have salvation. He came and lived the life we couldn't because we were dead in our sins and dead people can't save themselves. He died the death you and I should have that we deserve the wrath of God poured out on us, but Jesus was crushed under the wrath of God so that you and I could live. He rose again, securing and guaranteeing our new life. Jesus satisfied the payment of the curse of sin. We no longer have to pay it because we never could have, even if we tried. Justice was served on that day on, on our Savior, and He released us from the curse of sin. Because He died, I can live in Him. And the same is for true for you. By grace you have been saved. The most important and offensive truth to grasp about salvation is that it is something that you can't in any way, shape, or form contribute to. God has to do it all from start and to finish. 
And we're going to flesh out that statement by saved by grace a little bit more in verse 8. But for now, let's look at verse 6. It says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the past tense in this verse. It's has seated, not will seat. Because in God's eyes, those who are in Christ are already seated with Christ at a place of honor around God's throne. And what this shows us is this beautiful truth that our salvation is already completed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's already yours and it's already mine if we are in Jesus. There are no loops that you have to jump through. There is no nothing you can do to earn more security in your salvation it has been secured by the life death and resurrection of jesus christ and you have been sealed by the holy spirit verse 7 says so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in christ jesus I love this verse. It's such a wonderful verse. What it's telling us is, in a sense, we are God's trophy case. That through our lives and the grace that he has given to us, we will display all of that to the nations for the ages to come. Meaning we can share firsthand stories with our friends, neighbors, and family about what God, through his grace, has done in our lives. This is about how amazing, just think, sorry, about how amazing this is. Like, angels can't even do this, right? Like, we read angels doing a lot of amazing things in scriptures, but none of them can say that they have experienced God's grace. We alone are redeemed. It's our eternal privilege, and it's who we are are. Again, this is why we spent the bulk of this sermon on our depravity as humans. And we should learn to fully understand that depravity because only then can we celebrate and be overwhelmed by the depths of God's glorious grace and love for us. Which drives us to part three of the scripture, which operates as a summary of all that we have been looking at in verses 8 to 10, talking about the grace of God. And verses 8 to 10 contains the big idea of this whole sermon, which is humanity is rescued by grace through faith. And in these verses, we're going to see the four characteristics of salvation, of that rescuing that Paul has been detailing for us in these verses. Let's begin by looking at verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. In verse 8, we see the cause and means of our salvation. First, the cause of salvation is grace. What this is talking about is that God did it all for us. We are saved by grace through faith alone. God is the mover or the initiator of our salvation. As the Puritan John Owen said, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You and I don't deserve salvation, but what we but we have been given salvation because of God's grace. And what, what's happening is that we're receiving something that we fundamentally don't deserve. Secondly, in verse 8, we see the means of salvation. And the means of salvation is faith. Paul says salvation happens through faith by grace, right? Faith is the means by which God's salvation comes to us. So you might be wondering, well, what is faith? 
Well, maybe contrary to popular belief, faith is not a religious feeling. It's not a a virtue or something that comes naturally to a person. As Paul says at the end of verse 8, faith is a gift from God. He gives faith. We don't muster up faith. It's a beautiful picture if you think about it. Faith is believing that Christ has already in the past saved us. That Christ is already seated at the right hand of God. And when you believe that, Christ's salvation is suddenly all at once given to you. You realize that you have no part to play in that, and it's been accomplished and finished by another, by someone greater, by Jesus. And you may be wondering, well, why is this important for us to understand that faith is a gift? And verse 9 gives us the reasoning. It says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us will be able to walk into heaven with our shoulders raised high and our head lifted high, prideful, saying that we are a self-made man or woman. None of us will be able to walk into heaven like Frank Sinatra and say, I did it my way. I worked my way to heaven. No, you didn't. You were dead. And dead people can't save themselves. We have to reject this idea that we were somehow stranded out to sea, just waiting, longing for Jesus to throw us a life preserver. And then when he did, we grabbed onto it and Jesus pulled us in. No, the biblical picture that we saw today in our verses is that you and I were at the bottom of the sea dead our lungs were full of water and jesus had to come down pull our corpse out of the water expel the water from our lungs breathe new life into our soul and make us alive give us faith to believe in him we did nothing you and i were as dead as lazarus was in the grave stinking in our sins and jesus called us forth Jesus gave you new life, a new heart, a gift of faith so that no one can boast in and of themselves, but only boast in the Lord because to Christ alone is all glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Amen. And then lastly, in verse four, sorry, verse 10, we see the effects of salvation and the promise of salvation. Let's read together. It says, in chapter 2 verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them when looking at both verse 9 and 10 we see that we are not saved by works but rather we are saved to good works which are the effects of salvation the effects of salvation is good works there should be fruits and works that are evidence with our salvation if you are saved god is recreating you as his workmanship he puts his heart and his desires into you and if those are not there first john says you are not saved church we are not saved by good works We are validated by good works. We are saved by faith. But the effect of that salvation is that we will long to do the things of God, which are called good works. We have been given a new nature that longs to love and serve God, to make his name known. You can't earn any more love or acceptance from God, okay? Hear me. You so you have had it all. God displayed all his love and acceptance of you in the crushing of his son Jesus on the cross. Your works are now acts of worship and not forms of merit. 
Which brings us to the fourth characteristic of salvation, which is the promise of salvation. What God has started, he will finish. Amen. At the end of verse 10, this is what we see. It tells us that you are a work of God, that God is transforming you into something that glorifies him. And it tells you that God has already predetermined the end of that work, that you will be complete and perfect and beautiful and lacking nothing. And this should be such a source of encouragement to us as Christians because we tend to go through our days feeling like horrible Christians. We come to church defeated because we didn't read our Bibles enough or we missed an opportunity to share the gospel or we neglected our prayer life this past week or we lost our tempers in our homes. You fill in the blank. And we look at all these things and we begin to believe the lie of the enemy that we are not good enough to be God's children. And what that does is causes us to live lives of defeat. But here's your response to those lies when they begin to fill your mind. You say, this is what you say. You say, you're right, Satan. I'm not good enough to be God's child. But guess what? Jesus was and is, and he has counted his life and death and resurrection as my very own. And he has clothed me in his righteousness. And now I can stand confidently before a holy God because my Savior made a way. Yes, I still sin. Yes, I still fall short. But here in Ephesians 10, I see that God has committed himself to the good work of making me more like Christ every day. And I, by faith, believe that. So church, look in light of this whole chapter. You and I are people made completely alive, but we still live in a body of death. That means that we are simultaneously more wicked and dead and depraved than we probably ever realized and yet more accepted and alive in Christ and have more power flowing in us than we could ever have dreamed. You've got the spirit of resurrection life clothed in a body of depraved death. So Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. That that my sinful body has been killed with Christ and my spirit, my new man, my new woman is now alive in Jesus. And here's the secret. When you do that, when you believe that, that God has recreated you, God releases that resurrection power inside of you to live victoriously. The way to begin to live like God wants you to live as Christians is not to just buckle down and try harder. We think that we need to beat ourselves into submission. But here's what this verse tells us to do. It tells us to simply believe what God, that God has remade you in Christ. And you need to believe that, that you are a new creation, not a refurbished creation, but a new creation. And when you believe that, it begins to release the resurrection power inside of you. And you begin to live from victory rather for victory. Amen. But some of you are here and you are still outside of Christ. You are still laboring in, in your wickedness and working out your own salvation. And, and it's tiring. And Jesus is here, standing with arms wide open, ready to receive you, to remove and to appease the wrath of God for you so that you no longer have to be under his wrath, but in his grace. If that's you here today, 
that you have yet to bow your knee to Christ, to follow after Him, if you have yet to have the resurrection power coursing through your veins, causing you to live victoriously, come speak with me after service. I would love to introduce you to Jesus. That doesn't mean your life is going to automatically get better or easy, but you will be alive and in the grace of God. And that, nothing can compare with that. Let's pray.